I am David Attenborough, and I am 93. I've had the most extraordinary life. It's only now that I appreciate how extraordinary. Okay. A lot of the decay also blew into Belarus. You've always been saying this, that people don't talk enough about Belarusia. I've always said that Belarus never gets its light in the sun. Yeah. That's okay. why you subscribe to Belarus, Belarus Daily. Yeah. And that's why I'm on Belarus dating sites. So basically. You're listening to the Dude Nature Podcast. What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Dude Nature Podcast. I'm here in the reactor. Some neighbor is doing a lawnmower outside. He is mowing. You know, know, does he know that there is a famous podcast here? Probably not. I don't know or else he would never do something like that. We're in a pristine studio on yeah, top of a tower. We are, yeah, what I mean is we're in a pristine padded studio. Rooms. Beautiful padded rooms. Yeah. Sick mic setup. Yeah, LeBron just walked, came through. Yeah, no, when, Le- when LeBron was here, I was talking to LeBron. About some investments we have together. Yeah, Bron. Lebron. Yeah, Lebron. You ever heard of him? Gripe's digestion, Adam. Uh, My gripe is that the lawnmower. Literally the lawnmower the neighbor is doing is my gripe. Come on. How you got a lawnmower right now? But uh, the corner store, right, that I have, you know, you expect a corner store to have certain amenities, okay? It's got to have, you know, candy bars and you need it. It's got to have maybe some ice cream you usually go there for. Maybe, you know, if you need a little little dipper lipper. It's got to have it. And you just have chewing tobacco. That's like a corner store. Dip. One Has thing that dip. corner stores Has do have, have to have is eggs. Okay. If you, if I went to, I went to the corner store yesterday to get some eggs for a recipe late last night. Didn't have any eggs. What self-respecting corner store is going to run out of eggs? That's my gripe. They don't have eggs? No, they didn't have eggs. This is like the thing where I can't get mason That's jars. You can have not have eggs, but don't call yourself a corner store. Call yourself like, you know... The store on the corner that doesn't have the Cheeto eggs. store. That the point, Cheeto, you know the Cheeto store, the shit store. Yeah. Hey, mm-hmm. I have a gripe. Okay, I also want to. I want to do a shout out real fast to your other neighbor the other day. That on Monday at t- at what was it one o'clock? Monday at one o'clock, he we look over to Adam's neighbor. Yeah. And he's just taking a bong rip on the on the balcony of Monday one of that sticky icky. Yeah. And we and we just want to say that that's just a really strong move. Yeah, it, it was Monday at one o'clock. Because because doing it Monday is like your most productive day. Right. It's how you set up your week. So that dude is like, you know what? Fuck th- this week. He's just like He's like Rona. I'm not gonna do shit this He's week. Like, Fuck Rona. If you're taking rips Fuck everything. If you're taking rips at lunchtime on Monday, you know, your week is really not gonna go where is your week gonna go from there? It's only gonna go down. Was that your pleasantry or your gripe? I just want to give a shout out to the dude taking bong rips on, yeah. on the balcony at one on a Monday. Okay, yeah. Portland, Oregon, everybody. Seriously, shout out to him. Yeah, she, seriously, shout out to him. My gripe, my gripe, fall activities that your significant other tries to make you do. Okay, so we were on a hike the other day. Ashley said, and my amazing fiance said that the only dates we do are hikes and eating. And I said, yes, that's by design. Okay, but she said she wants to do a different date. And what, do you, what date do you think she wants to do, listeners and Adam? Pumpkin picking. Okay, that's one. What's the other one? Uh, make carve pumpkin. P- carve said pumpkin. no. Pum- it doesn't have to do with pumpkin. Get squash and make like a little no. fall bouquet. Okay, that's 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 one. But she so wants to go pumpkin pick- picking and apple picking. Oh, apple picking! I told her to me personally. It sounds to me like lots of people like lines, 
Like I'm gonna have to pay for it. I'm gonna have to drive to it. It's gonna be a whole schlep. Yeah, you know, it's a whole it's production. Just, I told I told her I was like, you're just not dating the dude that's gonna do that. Yeah. And she said she said I know in a very sad voice, and I was like, fuck. Oh fuck. She's not a fall yeah. kind of theatrical. You just you're just not dating the dude that's into. You're that. not into the spirit of fall. You don't like Halloween. I really, I really like, I really like fall. Yeah. I, but I don't want to go pumpkin picking and apple picking and pay a bajillion dollars to just like do something boring. You're not into the commercialized fall. No, it sounds so. It sounds boring. But, it sounds like crowds. She wants expensive. to go pumpkin picking. But but it, here's what's gonna happen. If we go pumpkin picking, I'm gonna be so miserable. We're gonna get in an argument the entire time. And that's what's gonna happen. And she actually knows that by now. So she's like, "Fuck it." She's like, "Fuck it." You know, plus, you know, once you know, we're we're engaged now. So it's like at this point, you know, there is no running away. What was that? Hey. No, let's play a little game while a lot more is going on. Let's do it. Let's fucking throw shit at him. Let's play that game. About Sir David Attenborough. The fucking man. What do you think? In your brain of brains, what do you think his first job was? David's first job. Uh had to be like an, a naturalist somewhere. Okay. Any other guesses? That would be my guess. So scientist somewhere. David, pretty close. He grew up on the University College campus of Leicester. Shout out to the, the Foxes. Shout out to the Foxes. Okay. Where he gathered newts for the zoology department. For a, for something, some British term called a sixpence. Apparently, How old was he? He was, uh, I think he was 11. Wow. Okay. Apparently, a sixpence is one eighteenth of a pound. Uh, sixpence, whatever that means. All right. He gathered newts yeah. for the zoology department because his dad was a professor at Leicester. Yeah. So he kind of hooked him up with zoology. And so David was just, he didn't tell him, but he was in a pond that was like 100 yards away from the actual building. So he would just go to the pond, get a bunch of newts. Give it to them. And he was selling newts. He was slinging newt. He was slinging newt. Yeah, he was a newt. Great slinger. first job for David. No, what's our topic today, guys? Our topic is a review on the David, the most recent David Attenborough film, A Life on Our Planet. Not just a review, a companion, as you will. A, a compa- companion's a better word. We're yeah. gonna talk talk about the film, and we're gonna go deeper into things that David mentions in the film that are very interesting. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Adam begins that don't suck. I'm ready to go. Okay. Are you ready? So ready. That's cool. Three, two, one, David. There is a really cool documentary, Noah, which we watched and which I hope that you guys listening to this watched or know about. And it's called A Life on Our Planet and it's on Netflix. It's the latest natural documentary by the legendary naturalist himself, Sir David Attenborough. Okay. He's the dude that made the blue planet. He's the dude that made planet Earth. He's the dude that made life. And many other such documentaries. Okay, he's the go-to naturalist. Like Fauci is the go-to um, pandemicologist, basically. He's the go-to naturalist for our world. He's one of the most well-traveled men on the planet also, traveling over 256,000 miles in his life. So we watched the documentary, and now we're going to go a little bit deeper into some of the most interesting topics presented in it because in the documentary, it goes by pretty quickly, and it t- touches on things that are very, very cool. So we wanted to have a deep dive into it. Noah, what is our theme? Adam, our theme for this episode, it's very simple, our theme. Our theme, our theme is David Attenborough is the absolute man. That's a great theme. It's just he's the absolute man. I don't know what other theme we could do here. Yeah. The dude is 90. I, I'm, we're just going to. I can't this, believe that he's 93. I'm yeah. going to roll this right into our first section, the general discussion on the film. The dude is 93. 
Yeah. He's 90 fucking three. Have you guys ever seen it? Like a 90 year old? We had a 91 year old grandma. They're not doing so well. No. A 91. They're not talking in the cameras. They're not like, they're not doing well. David is walking around Chernobyl. Like he's like the, he's haunting Chernobyl. But is it like, do they like, are there two people holding him up? And then for the scene, do they like, okay, David, we need to stand on your own for like 30 seconds. I know, but whatever makeup. Okay. So it's either the makeup artist or David himself, but he looks really good. He looks, it looks healthy. He looks super healthy. There's, there's no like when he talks, you know, there's no, there's not much spittle flying out of his mouth. You know, like he's a 93 year old man. There's not spittle flying out of his mouth. His is like one side of his face. Isn't like just going on the opposite direction of his other side. No. Like, no. he looks really, really good. He still does his David inflection of his voice when he talks. He's like, and now I'm going to tell you how. You know? He's really good at voice inflection. He's super good at, he's super, super good at voice inflection. You look, like, literally, like, like Star of, Wars. Like, because half of your face is dark right now and half of your face is light. It's like you are in I'm a Ray. war with a battle of hey, light and dark. Talking about Star Wars, fucking what bullshit the <laughs> most recent films were. I just want to put that out there. Back yeah. to David. Classic. Speaking of the battle of good and evil. Speaking of the battle of good and evil. Okay, we're going to go general discussion on the film. All right. I'm going to tell you my take. I loved, loved the first half. Okay? Because I thought the first half was unbelievably original. And the first half of the film, if you haven't seen it, or just to recap, it is David, it's David Attenborough's, it's him telling the story of the environment, but through his personal travels and experience. So it's like through him being a naturalist from the 1950s. So he's really, he's telling you, it's very original because it's a personal account from him traveling all these places on what filming was like, how filming got harder and harder each year and what he personally saw. So like one thing he says is that back in the day in the 1950s, they would fly in airplanes and just go over wilderness, the endless expanses of wilderness for hours and hours. And now like that's not true anymore at all. So he's personally, it's just a crazy life. Like he's personally seen the wilderness uh, disappear before his eyes. So I think the first half was extremely, extremely interesting. This then, then, then David brings us somewhere sad, okay. And David usually does this in his documentaries, as you'll see, is that he he goes sad before the end. So he so his documentaries are usually information, 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 sad part, and then happy ending. Mm-hmm. Okay. So again, really strong first half with that really original take. Then he brings you sad so much to the point. Dude, you can just jump in here whenever you want. So much to the point that if you've seen the walrus scene from, I believe it's our planet. Oh, with the walrus. Okay. Yeah. So if, you, if you've if you seen that scene, if you haven't seen the scene, the scene that I'm talking about is walruses are basically, they don't have enough land anymore because of those melting sea ice. They climb up on the cliffs cause to get away from other walruses and they're basically falling Especially a walrus falling down a cliff and just smashing on the rocks. And dying. And dying. Over yeah. and over again. There's a scene of him showing the scene of the walrus so, at a conference. This is what David does. He doesn't only make you watch the walrus scene again. He makes you watch other people watch the walrus Good scene. Move. Yeah, I like it. Great move. Yeah. So you're you're basically, you are watching other people watch the walruses. Right. Die. Other people that can afford to go to the conference. Other people that can afford to go to whatever whatever conference he's at. So he takes you real low after the first half. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's really it's really his style. It is like I mean. We so do, wait, what, what did you like about the second half? Then. Yeah. No, I'm I'm gonna get I'm gonna, I'm gonna get well, so, get there get there. Yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get there. I'm just recapping. I guess I guess no, I should said. We, no, I'm gonna finish recapping the film. Adam. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah but okay, you're, gotcha. You're right. I should have said it was a recap, basically. No. Thank so, you for the recap. 
Okay, so after he brings you to watching people watch the saddest, saddest nature segment in history of nature segments, okay, then he brings you back out with new technology and shit. And I would say that our podcast focuses mostly about, about the new technology and cool shit. Um, yeah. brings, he brings you back out about how we, how we can save the planet. Um, the reason the second half wasn't as strong for me is because it just, it just, it's, not orig- it's not as original. It was still great. I loved the film. But the first half... It's like, even if you've seen every nature documentary out there, which, which you know, I love them. So I've seen almost every one. Uh, it's very original. It's an original take. It's a very original take on how to tell that story. And the second half is not as original. So that's why. Your take on, your take on the film. Um, my take on the film is that I really loved that it was going through, very cool that it was going through his life and all the stages of him experiencing the nature. Right, first half. Okay, because if you if you know if you have a backyard or you've been out in the nature a lot, and you watch the seasons happen, you can see that the trees, you know, they're dropping their leaves early. They're dropping their leaves maybe beginning beginning of October, and it's or end of September, and it's a little suspicious. And I love that it's going through his eyes, the human's eyes, seeing this thing because climate change is one of the hardest things when you're explaining it to people. It's abstract because you can't see it, right? But instead, they flip that around, and David's actually seeing the changes with his own eyes, which I feel is a very important distinction that's good. for, pe- like, for I, people to get. That's good. I like that. I also really love the counter. the count- So you can see the data and how um, how crazy bad the data yeah, has gotten that was really good. over the years. Um, and one thing that I really enjoyed is that he focuses specifically on the problem with biodiversity, which I hadn't actually contextualized before. So the problem is that the diversity of our planet is dying off. So we're getting more mono. We're getting to the monoculture. And that's bad because the web of, you know, the web of the ecology of our world relies on many different species being present at the same time. And he kept using the word biodiversity, biodiversity over again. So that means many different species. And that's the problem with climate change. And I thought that that was really, really cool. Instead of just the planet dying, it's specifically the planet's biodiversity shrinking. That's, that felt way more concrete to me. I really like that they did that from like an education standpoint. I was really happy about that. Yeah. Okay. So I, I really loved it. I mean, there's some, they, they give like a, um, a mile wide inch deep kind of approach on everything. And that's why we're doing that's why, this, yeah, this podcast. Cause we want to go deep on some of the things that they went very surface level on. Yeah. And I, I do feel like that is what he's so good at too. Yeah. Um, and also I think one thing I just like, I just think about that I want to share with people is that, so like with, with our generation, with millennials, it's like the climate change awareness. So I saw this stat somewhere that only like 9% of millennials don't think that climate change is a big deal. Mm-hmm. So most everyone, even if you're not doing anything for it, they know, they believe it's a thing and they're concerned with it. Yeah. They're like, they're very concerned. And I think a lot of that has to probably do with some of his films. So if, you know, if we end up actually getting through climate change and, and surviving, he could be the most important man ever alive because of the awareness that he's brought through his films. Yeah. So I think about, yeah, because the awareness he's brought through his films, if we end up changing the stuff and, and writing the earth, he would be the most important person ever born. One thing that I don't act, kind of get is it might be a British thing is he kept saying, this is my witness statement. Like, what is, what does that mean? This is my I witness th- statement. Uh, right. Right. Like, kind of like, like what you said, it's, it's, a, a, it's a personal account. Okay. This is my personal account. This is what I saw. Yeah, no, I kind of get that, but I've just never heard anyone use that before. Wit- a witness statement. Yeah, is that an ism, a Britishism? 
Maybe. witness statement. My witness statement. I, I agree. This they is my were, witness statement. They were statement. really plugging that in the advertising for the film. And yeah. I did kind of feel like that was kind of a weird... I think it's an ism. I don't really know. That was kind of a weird thing. It's a Brit. Anyway, yeah. we're going to get into it. Noah, tell us about the first part, which okay. is whaling yeah. in the oceans. In the movie, you'll probably you will probably see some clips of whales getting harpooned. That's just really, really savage. Okay? Um. So... I was so <laughs> when I saw that I was like, "Where are we at anyway with whaling?" Right? Because you hear about whaling, so are we still whaling? Like, what is going on? Okay, so commercial whaling—it's—it's it's internationally banned. Okay, we almost wiped out all the whales, which is which is bad. The the blue whales. Every species of whale. We almost wiped out like most most all whales. Do you know? Do you know what what percent blue whales are at? What they were? What? They're at 3% of what their population used to be. Jesus. Let me just say that whaling is actually a, it's a success story in conservation because we were, were wiping them out and now it's commer- it's internationally banned. It's right. a huge success story actually. In the movie, you see him, he's on a boat, right? He's talking into a radio. So that is the, a Greenpeace boat, yeah. Okay, and he's, they're working to save the whales when they're like doing uh, the monkey, monkey wrenching essentially. Do you know what monkey wrenching is? No. It's like when it, it's like a, an environmentalist tactic. Where instead of like attacking someone that's cutting down trees, they'll like pop the tires and stuff like that, or like break the machinery, right? To not kill the person. Yeah, yeah. That's how they like they like you yeah know, fight back kind of sort of uh, aggressively. Yeah, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get into this because that that can be that that's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, um. So although whaling is banned, okay, mm-hmm. there are still what I like to call the Voldemort threesome of whaling motherfuckers, motherfuckers that just won't stop whaling. Stop whaling. Stop killing the whales. All right. It's Japan, Iceland, and Adam, this Nordic country that everyone says is a great place to live. I guess they fucking Wait, whale. Iceland, really? Yeah. When I think of Iceland, I think of like they got to figure it out. I right? think, yeah, I think of exactly. The, the, I think of Iceland like they've got all the environmental stuff. No, they're damn whalers. They're still whaling. I, I, the, and the third one, so Japan, Iceland, and the third one is surprising too because it's a Nordic country that everyone's like, oh, they're like, their quality of life is so high. They got everything figured out. Yeah. Is it, wait, is it Sweden? No. Finland, Denmark. No. It's not. Oh, it's the other one. Norway. Sweden. Oh, fuck. Yeah, that's the third one. Okay. So they continue to whale, although it is a fraction of what it used to be. And Iceland is like, Iceland's biggest whaling company said last year that they weren't going to whale anymore because it, it wasn't, there's been a lot of movements and it wasn't profitable anymore. How is it not profitable anymore? Isn't that the problem? Uh, that whaling is not ta- profitable? Because of taxes? Or it's not profitable because of how hard it is now for them to, to go whaling and also because of the consumerism yeah. because they used to sell most of the whale meat to tourists that came to Iceland and now people are wise to it and they're like, we're not supporting this. Okay. Yeah. So again, whaling, big, big win the for three the conservation movie. The okay. three Voldemorts, Japan, Iceland, Norway. Yeah. Damn fucking whaling. Next time someone says Norway is a great country to live, tell them they're damn whalers. Okay. Yeah. Japan uses a legal loophole allowing scientific whaling. What does that mean? Okay, so that means that like in the whaling like treaty or whatever, they're allowed to to wait to get like scientific whales to like research by science. And Japan says that all their wh- they have like if you look at some Japanese whaling vessels, like some infamous ones that the Sea Shepherd has chased, they have research painted in huge letters across like their hull. Oh, so they try to make it's like a Q ship. It's like, like a, a legal Q-ship loophole, and they pretend that they're like scientific whaling, and this is bullshit. 
but they're not. They're actually they're fucking commercial, not. Commercial yeah, they suck. They suck. So wait, how do you? What do they sell this whale blubber? Why do they want it? Why is it so coveted? Like, what do you sell whale, whale blubber for? It's a really good question. I didn't. I didn't get. Is into it oil? That. It's oil, right? Or it was oil, like Moby Dick shit. It was like the oil in their head. That's or a really. Good, I, I. It's a really good question. We don't know. We don't know. Fuck. Yeah, I don't know why they're still doing this shit. But Damn this podcast. I can fucking. I fucking imagine that we don't need to be doing it. Okay. Okay. Um. Iceland and Norway, they just straight up eject the whaling ban. They don't even they don't even pretend to do science. <laughs> They're just like, we're not even gonna pretend to do scientific whaling. We just fucking we're just gonna keep whaling. Is it illegal to to whale? Like internationally? Yes, yes it is internationally illegal to whale. What is the international governing body of the oceans then? Hmm. Because it's international waters, right? You think that anything can happen. Right. So it is internationally illegal to whale, but I guess for for si- if you're going to do scientific whaling, if you le- use that loophole, you can only do the scientific whaling in your waters, in your domestic waters. Okay. Um, so we talked about Iceland, how they're actually going way down, way down in whaling. Um, one thing I want to touch on, remember the Sea Shepherd, Adam? Yeah, the sea- we know the Do you show. guys remember that? Remember that show where it's like this basically a militant environmental group that goes out and like throws shit to like spoil the whale meat and stuff? Yeah, not exactly militant, but aggressive. They're aggressive tactics. I, they're more militant than you. But that, think. that's like monkey. That's monkey wrench. That's that's what that is. Okay, they so, are not going to like kill people on board the whaling ship, but they will like cut their their. They're not going to kill people on board the whale ship. I think it's really interesting. The, I think it's really interesting when I research them because, again, like it's like where is the where do you draw the line? Yeah, that's the problem, right? That's the pro- so where is like when when you so basically like the Sea Shepherd has. They're a huge. They're very large now. They have Sea Shepherd Global, okay, which is the direct, which is what they call the Direct Action Conservation Team. That's the one that listener, you guys are probably familiar with from the show. Yeah, it's called Direct Action. And then there's Sea Shepherd Conservation, which directs just all kinds of different marine conservation activities. So, what is something that Sea Shepherd would do, like modern, like right now? Okay, so they, so now they're fucking huge, and they actually partner with countries now. It's really cool. So, for instance, they partnered with Gabon. Gabon in West Africa to stop illegal fishing. They partner with Peru to patrol the marine sanctuaries. They partner with Namibia to stop illegal drift nets. So they're actually partnering now with governments. They're like contractors. They're exactly. They're like contractors for these governments because they're like a highly skilled force yeah. that has state of the art boats. Okay. How did they come to be? How did they get state of the art boats in the first place? Where's the funding do, originally? Do, do, donations. So one of their boats is called the Bob Barker. Specifically because Bob Barker donated like a million dollars. Price is wrong, Bob. Price is fucking wrong, Bob. So Bob 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 donated like a million dollars for this. So they so they get tons of um celebrity donations. Just goes to Aerith, show you. There's there's some pictures of Aerosmith. Behind, behind everything successful. Is a lot is of a money. Rich, is a rich celebrity. Is a rich celebrity. Hey. Exactly. So thanks, thanks for this podcast celebrity. as well. Thanks, 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 thanks Braun. Thank you, Braun. Thank you, thank you, Braun. Thank you, Braun. You can leave the studio, bud. Yeah, we'll see you. You can go back to the court. We'll yeah, see you, buddy. Man. We'll see you later. Congratulations Congra- on the championship. Congrats on the championship. All right. Um, notable thing. Okay, so the amount of boats they have. I just want. I want to talk about their boats. Okay, they have fifteen total vessels now. The Sea Shepherd. They're like they're very very wow. large. That's a lot. Well, I think when we were reading the Ocean Book, um, the by the Ocean Book, I mean the. I'm looking at it right now. The, the Outlaw Ocean. I got the title. Yeah. Okay. I think they had three boats. Okay, yeah. No, they're big. They partner with com- with countries. They're like very skilled environmental sailors. And when you like look at their pictures, their their branding is really interesting to me too. 
Oh yeah, it's a, isn't it a skull and one is a shepherd? So their branding is a black skull, kind of like a pirate flag. It's it's Got a it. jolly. They actually call it a Jolly Roger. It is indeed. Yeah. Yep. So it is. Uh, it looks like a pirate flag. Fuck, we need to do a pirate podcast. It, oh fuck yeah! I'm it, right it looks like it looks like a uh, a pirate flag, and their boats look like a military ship. They're really intimidating. Their boats. Um, so notable things that happened in their in their history in 1979, the Sea Shepherd rammed the ship, the Sierra, a whaling ship, mm-hmm. thought to be responsible for the disappearance of humpback whales in the Caribbean, um, and they sunk it. So this oh, is where shit. this is where I get to like you get to the line of like like so if they ram this ship, the Sierra, mm-hmm. and they sink it, and someone dies, yeah, where where are you ethically on because, that? Because because. It's important to point out that the people on these boats are that are doing not commercial bad. fishing yeah, exactly. are a lot of the times basically slaves or indentured servants. A lot of times they are basically slaves with no other option. Yeah. If you want to learn more about this, read the Outlaw Ocean. Right. So the Good people book. on these ships, they are just like, they have no option. Yeah. They're sometimes Poor been forced as into fuck. this. Poor, Poor as, as fuck. fuck. Like they're... So if you ram the ship, the Sierra, and you kill one of these crew members... Who really is like just doing this to like try and survive? Is that ethical, Adam? Well, I would ask you. What happened in this situation? So in this situation, they t- they took the when they ran they ran the ship. They took the crew onto their ship. Yeah, right. So that's what I would say is that if you're gonna sink the ship, you have to make sure everyone survives. Did everyone survive? I'm actually not sure. Okay, but they took I the crew, the crew of the whaling. But it's not like they go up to and ram the ship. At first, they're like, hey, can you like stop doing this, right, over and over. And they, then there's a chase. There's like a chase through all these international right, waters. Right, right, it right. could be for months, as we were reading. It could be for months, these chases. And then finally, they take some sort of aggressive action against the ship. Right. They're, they are very... Okay, uh, another thing that happened. Undercover crew sunk two out of the four Icelandic whalers in, when they were in port in the 80s. So, like, the crew was undercover, and they just, like, scuttled the ship by, by screwing around with it. Really? I would love to know more about this. I could not. Is it a turtle? Did com- they use a turtle? Did they use a turtle to go to go underwater and get it? Yeah. I don't know what they did. They were undercover in the whaling crew. Okay. Okay. Wow. Um, in, t- in 2015, the Bob Barker led the longest chase in maritime history, okay, which was 110 days. It yeah. followed the Thunder. A ship wanted for illegal poaching by Interpol for 10 years. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. At the end of the chase, the captain of the Thunder, after 110 days, he sunk his own ship to destroy evidence of the poaching. Yeah, he was a fuck, though. He was a fuck. And again, with this example, they took... When the, when he sunk his own ship, they took all the sailors onto their ship. What is that like? What are you What are you going to do with the, uh, the crew once you get back to a port? Well, what do you do with the crew on your ship? Do you have a prison? No, I, I don't think we had a prison in this case. I think they're they're just kind of like riders, passengers. I mean, I would not feel safe with that. Yeah, I don't. But they're they're pretty prepared for that stuff, right? That's part of why they're such a skilled crew. Yeah, they're a very skilled crew. They're really ready for this shit. But like in the war, like with submarines, they were ready at the early parts of the war. They were ready to take on a crew from from the opposition, from the enemy. Yeah. So you remember that part in submarines where where the Lusitania. Where he fires the one torpedo and it's already sinking. Yeah. So what? It, yeah, I wonder. Like the rules when when you sink an enemy ship and there's sailors dying in the water, because they're not a danger at that point. Right. You're. I mean. Yeah. But technically, they could get onto another ship and they you know increase the naval force. Uh huh. 
Well, I mean, this is a little bit getting a little bit into like the Game of Thrones situation where it's like, if you're going to be a conqueror, right, do you want to just burn everyone, kill everyone? Like what is going to be left right. when you win? Right. If you kill those sailors that are helpless, yeah, then everyone's going to hate you. Yeah, exactly. So that's why there's there's some some rules here. Okay. You'd, you'd hope. Inter- another interesting thing. The Adumaru, one of their vessels, was fighting whaling in Antarctica and was and was hit by a Japanese whaling vessel, the Shonan Maru 2. So... Their ship, the Sea Shepherd's ship, was yep. ran, was was hit. It was a huge legal battle. I read through legal documents on this. Their ship was hit by a Japanese whaling vessel. Okay, yep. their crew was saved by the nearby Sea Shepherd ship, the Steve Irwin. Okay, mm-hmm. but there there's a big legal battle with the Sea Shepherd trying to get like millions of dollars from this Japanese whaling company for breaking their ship. But the Japanese whaling company is like, you were following us and harassing us. And we couldn't see you, but, and I read, and it's yeah, tough, so tough it, to know. It's so it's like a war on the waters. It's a war in the, in the courts and it's a war. Actually, yeah, it's physically. a war in the courts. It's a war. It's a war in the waters. Um, yeah, it's interesting. And, and honestly, like, that's just what we know. There's probably a ton of shit that we don't know. What are some numbers? Are there some numbers or statistics to show that the Sea Shepherd has made a noticeable difference in the, in their crew? I think they definitely have. Yeah. Um, you can go on their site, mm-hmm. and they have chronologically listed out. They have obviously a very nice webpage. Their marketing is really good. Yeah, they got they got. There's one thing that's I'm, it's interesting to me. They've really like pumped this like direct action environmental marketing to like a very good. It's interesting. Yep. Anyway, you can go on their site and see chronologically listed every single action that they've taken and read through it, and they've taken a shit ton. Okay, so where are we at with modern with whaling right now? Okay, so where we're at with whaling, it's internationally banned. The Sea Shepherd's really big and patrols a lot of places. And um, the only three countries, the Voldemorts of whaling, Japan, Iceland, and Norway. How about uh, how about dolphins? Did you get into dolphins at all? I didn't get just... into dolphins. Okay. Focus on whaling. Didn't touch on the dolphins. Didn't touch on the dolphins. Just the whaling. Just the whaling. And now we're going to jump. Where, I just want to know what the demand is for whaling products. Like, we don't have yeah, gas. No. That's a really we don't good have, point. like, gas oil lamps anymore. It's a really good point. Right? Like, why the hell are they doing this? Like, w- stop what it. What the fuck do you use a whale for? Stop shit. It, I mean, you saw the images in planet Earth. It's like when you harpoon these whales are really intelligent. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're definitely conscious. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. You are really killing something conscious for sure. For sure. All animals are conscious, I believe. Yeah. But there's different levels of consciousness and whales are whales are high up there. Absolutely. Okay. Adam. Yeah. Now we're going to jump. Okay. We're going to. Uh, it's going to be a little bit of a turn. But David shows one scene where it looks like someone is seaweed farming. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Do yeah. You, do you want to make a jump? We're going to make a jump. Oh, yeah. Good. Warp it. Warp it. That's how you make a fucking jump. That's how you make a jump. Seaweed farming. I don't know exactly where to put that sound effect, but I know I, w- I, just, I, know I want it. It's a little bit shorter, but I like it. I know I need it in the pod somewhere. It's I just don't know exactly where to put it. a little bit long. Seaweed farming. Okay. Seaweed farming. So there's a scene, like Noah was saying. Really quickly, where they pan over, I think in a helicopter or probably a drone, where some dude is just taking in lines and lines and lines of green, brown kelp, it looks like, and harvesting it. So what is up with this harvesting? What is the future of it? First of all, what the fuck is seaweed, Noah? Seaweed, it's the common name, obviously, for over a thousand species of red, green, and brown algae. Basically, like, it's stuff that grows in the sea. That looks like it could be in your salad, essentially. Okay. So kelp, kelp is a seaweed. 
big strand of kelp. You can use that as seaweed. Can you eat it? Yeah, you can eat kelp. Is it nutritional? Yeah. It photosynthesizes. It's green or brown. It's in the sea. It's probably considered seaweed. It's a, basically a blanket term. Okay, so why aren't why aren't we doing more seaweed farming? Is it <sighs> is it useful? Like, what's is the problem with it? The thing about seaweed is it's fucking lit. The first thing you should know about seaweed is it's lit and it's, it's fucking lit. I saw the, the he does the pan out with the dude getting the seaweed. And I was like, what is that? That must be seaweed farming. Yeah, it's a, it's extremely useful. So according to Frontiers in Marine Science, aquaculture. What is aquaculture? Aquaculture is water farming. So if you have like if you have mussels. You're doing aquaculture. If you have fish that you're farming, you know, raising in stocks, aquaculture. You have seaweed. If you have maybe some, uh, maybe you're raising, what's that, anemones for tanks? You're doing aquaculture farming. Cool. Aquaculture itself accounts for 50% of the world's seafood production. 50%. So it's not wild caught. Aquaculture, you mean the, the raising of fish? Right. The raising of fish, the raising of things from the sea that we eat. Okay. Okay. The equivalent of, you know, how picking an apple in the wild versus picking one on your farm. Picking one on your farm is aquaculture. Yeah. Okay. 50% of the world's seafood production. So the seaweed farming itself accounts for 27% of the global marine aquaculture. So it's already kind of a bigger deal than you might think in the States. I mean, you don't see a lot of seaweed here. Seaweed is 27%. 27% of the global aquaculture production. Okay. So we actually are doing a solid amount of it. We're doing a solid amount of seaweed production. Okay. What's the deal with it, though? Yeah. According to the same paper, really quick, the, sa- the seaweed industry itself is growing at 8% per year. So it's taking off. And it's going to take off even more in the future. Let's talk about why seaweed is so fucking lit. Basically, nitty gritty, seaweed is really good at growing, like kelp, right? It's it grows really fast. tall. Yeah, super fast. It's really good at photosynthesizing. And seaweed can be grown as a carbon sink. So what's a carbon sink? What is it? Trees are the biggest carbon sink on land right now because they take in carbon from the atmosphere, right? That's right. Remember, carbon dioxide, CO2, that's a greenhouse gas. So we want to get that out of the atmosphere into these trees. Seaweed is really good at taking carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and storing it. So it's a great carbon sink. So it's a great carbon sink. A really good one. Okay. Um, so growing seaweed to specifically use it to suck carbon out of the atmosphere is in play. Right now, according to the Journal of Current Biology in 2019, if you used, okay, this, you're going to have to stay with me for this study, all right? Yeah, just, just, yeah, yeah. Okay. If you used 14% of the current aquaculture farms just to raise seaweed, which then you take it and it gets buried, okay, it gets buried in the ocean. I don't, scientists have this a little bit of an obsession here, which we're going to get into that practical people kind of reject in the seaweed industry is that you will just... You will just take the carbon, the seaweed will grow, and then you take the seaweed and you just bury it at the bottom of the ocean. What? Yeah. What? Exactly. Like, that's not practical, really, right? But that's what this study says right here. So just go with it for right now, okay? Oh, so, oh, so, so when the seaweed gets full of carbon, you take it and you bury it. You take it and you fucking bury it and you never see it again. It's just, it's just a carbon store. Okay. Okay. So if you used 14% of the current aquaculture farms just to raise the seaweed, which then gets buried in the ocean, it would offset the cost of the entire aquaculture industry. So if you used 14% of the current aquaculture farms to grow seaweed, you would have a net neutral. Carbon neutral. You would, yeah, you would be neutral for the aquaculture industry. And why is that important? Because the aquaculture industry is 50% of the world's seafood production. 
So you're starting to get to a net neutral balance. Yeah, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We get the neutral carbon emission. All right, so 40%, that's not that much, right? Yeah. So you should have to make, you should have to, there should be a law for that. Right. So let's, let's think now, let's blow it up a little bit bigger. And this study does for the entire agriculture industry as a whole. How much seaweed would you have to grow yeah. to offset the mm-hmm. entire agriculture industry? Give it to me. You'd have to use 15% of the ocean that you could possibly use for seaweed farming. So obviously most of the ocean is fucking like, you know, three to five miles deep. Yeah. Not, you can't really seaweed farm there. That's not practical, right? So not much of the ocean is you be able to use for seaweed, but 15% of the ocean that you could use for seaweed, if you did farm it, it would offset the agriculture industry, according to so, this paper. Okay, 15% of the of the usable land of the ocean? Out of all of the land of the ocean that you can use for seaweed farming. Yeah. 15% of that land, if you used it just to grow seaweed as a carbon sink, okay. it would offset the agriculture industry as a whole. Okay. Because it's so effective as a carbon sink. That's really cool. So also... Can that seaweed farm exist as like a sanctuary for animals too? Yeah, because they cool. love the seaweed. They fucking love that. They seaweed. fucking love that seaweed. They love kelp. Yeah, they love swimming around in the. Who kelp. doesn't like kelp? Kelp is sick. Uh, yeah, kelp. Also, just aquaculture growing something in water is so sick to me. I like literally am dying to start my own aquaculture tank. Yeah, that you know, with anemones and shit. So you can grow your own kelp? I just want to be an aquaculturist. Can you grow a kelp forest in here? Yeah. Fuck yeah. Well, let's fucking hey, grow a kelp forest in this podcast studio hey, so, right now. So, but animals can use that as a nursery, right? Yeah, that's a good idea. You did nothing about that. Nothing about that, but I think that's really cool. Like, okay. why not? It's right. these kind of ideas, Noah. You're the kind of person that we that's need. Because I'm a fucking that's idea why, guy. That's why you're on this podcast. I'm an idea guy. Okay, so there's the research, right? There's the big ideas. Let's talk about practical seaweed. Actually putting this research into effect. Does it taste good? Yeah, I think it tastes oh, good. But you're talking about removing carbon. Wait, with honestly, you're, yeah. not talk, you're not really talking about that. But you're no. not really talking about using it for food. You're no, more focused was, on carbon neutral. I was literally it. just as a carbon sink. Okay, that's cool. Experiment. That's cool. Um, yeah, I think I think it tastes good. I mean, I get I get packs from the TJs all the time. Okay. It, I mean, as a veggie, you know, when your standards have just dropped for every kind of food imaginable, it tastes <laughs> great. The thing about being a veggie is when when something is there that will give you most of your daily nutrition, you just eat it. Absolutely. Because that is such a battle in itself. Okay, so entrepreneurs have been jumping on the seaweed industry because it's growing at 8% per year. So with a few notable startups that we're going to talk about, all, all of them, well, most of them, pretty much, they don't want to just, as you can imagine, bury the seaweed in the bottom of the ocean, as stated by the papers above. And they instead want to use it to make some kind of profit. So therefore, they use it as a carbon sink. They make profit. Everybody wins, right? White? Win, 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 win. They use the seaweed as a carbon sink. Instead of using the seaweed as a carbon sink to bury the bottom of the ocean. Yes. Businesses have to make a profit to keep running. Yeah. Are you aware of that? I am aware of that. We seem to sometimes not be aware of that, but yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We seem to not get it, but yeah. No, that's just for fun. Okay, keep going. Okay, so they're saying that, great, this is great research, but we're not going to bury the seaweed at the bottom of the ocean. We're going to take the seaweed and we're going to instead try to use it to turn a profit. And therefore, it's good for the environment and it's good for us. Yes. Win-wins everywhere. Yeah. Okay. So what can seaweed be used for? Number one is biofuel. It can be used to fuel cars because there's so much of it. There's so much mass of it. Number two, it's a marine life habitat, like you were saying. In the oceans, it plays a vital role of detoxifying the water and deacidifying, which is really necessary right now. So it's great for coral reef bleaching fighting. So if you plant some kelp, seaweed, it could help with the bleaching. That's cool. Um, Crazy one. It's great for livestock. It's from an actual study. 
When the cows were fed seaweed instead of grass, they produced 70% less meth- methane. Why wow. is me- Methane is a horrible greenhouse gas. La- when I was teaching, methane was 17, it was proposed to be 17 times as bad of a greenhouse gas as carbon dioxide. What's a greenhouse gas? Something that traps in heat in the environment. Yeah. It was 17 times worse than carbon dioxide, one molecule. But now it's, I guess it's 30 times as bad is what, I, what I'm reading. So methane's really bad. So if you feed the cow seaweed instead of grass, they produce 70% less methane. So that's great. Yeah. It's like literally cow farts. They just don't, they just don't fart as much. Get on I the guess. seaweed train. They don't, they don't fart as much. Um, let's talk about a startup called Primary Ocean. Okay. Talk to me about it. California also, let me just mention while doing this research, mm-hmm. it's, it's got some problems, but a lot of things that California is doing environmentally are really cool. Okay. So this is based in California. Um, the goal of primary ocean is to extract the seaweed for this kind of agricultural livestock use because okay. it produces less, less methane and it's great for the cows to eat. Unfortunately, the founder recently said in quotes, farming seaweed as a carbon sink is not a viable business at this time. It is easier to get a license for an oil rig than it is for seaweed farming. Really? Yes. So it's governmentally very challenging. Um, one really, really cool thing about California is they have something called carbon credits, which I had no idea. Do you know what this is? I kind of know what this is, but, but, but okay. It's a really cool business model. Um, a carbon credit is something that the big power plants have. So they have a certain amount of credits, which is one ton of carbon. That's equivalent to a 2,400 mile drive in a car that they can use and they can buy credits from other companies. Right. So that's their, their waste. Basically they're using a carbon credit. Right, you, have, go, you have to have the credits for each waste that you And they produce. have a certain amount of credits that they can use. I think it's genius because of this reason. You can sell them your carbon credits. So it's a carbon market. That's what people say when they say a carbon marketplace. No, I totally agree with you. It's, it's so cool. Because yeah. if, if you get better environmentally as, yeah. as a company, you literally can you sell can your credits. You can sell your credits and make more money. Exactly. So one yeah, of, it's genius. So the business model for Primary Ocean, they're going to sell the seaweed as an agricultural product. And they're also going to sell carbon credits to power plants because they're net neutral. Can you, can you explain? Because they're going to sell their car. The, the seaweed company is going to sell their carbon credits that they have. Hey, when Aladdin said, come with me on a magic carpet ride. Okay. He, Jasmine <laughs> yeah, had to Jasmine come with him onto the thing, right? So him. why no, are you not coming out of my magic I'm like carpet? Raja, just like where the fucking Jasmine go? Yeah. No, but listen. Yeah. You're saying that 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 they're going to sell the carbon credits back to these companies. Okay, so they have the primary reason they have three sources of income was a proposed business model. I know what it is. Ready for this? I yeah. think I know what it is. What? I, I, the seaweed comp- if if the the let's say the power plant company, mm-hmm. they can pay a certain amount of money to the seaweed farming company. And the seaweed farming company, because they're carbon neutral, yeah. they take carbon out of the atmosphere, which would then give that power plant company more carbon credits. Exactly. Yeah. There you go. You've now come into my magic carpet, and now we're on a magic carpet ride, and anything's possible, right? Anything is possible. Okay. So uh, we're on the magic carpet. Let me just say with Aladdin. Sure, yeah. Hey, he was really poor, street rat. What a fucking haircut. Great haircut. Great vest. Underrated vest. Great vest. Underrated vest. Honestly. Um. Okay, so they got the carbon credits, they got the agricultural selling. And then the third thing that they need to have a viable business model is they need subsidies from the government. Okay, they need, we need the government, especially our government, to be like, okay, you are doing something as a carbon sink. 
Therefore, you get tax incentives, right? Therefore, you get maybe subsidies like we give to farmers right now. Yes. Okay. We need the government to support these businesses because then they would be viable. So that's my take on it, really. I wish that they had more help to grow seaweed because, as you can tell, seaweed is really awesome. And I think the carbon credit system for seaweed is really, really cool. I'm really into the And more system. states should do it. So good on California for doing that for its bigger power Do you know how many states do the carbon credit system? California and... I don't know. I think there's only two. There you go. Um, I love it. So I, that's that's I, a wrap on seaweed, but I'm, I'm really lit on seaweed. I'm really into the carbon credit system. Yeah, I am really into not burying the seaweed at the bottom of the ocean and instead making it a business. And that's what Primary Ocean tried to do. I went to their website to see if they were still around. There hasn't been much action since 2018, so I don't think that they made it. We know how that goes. Exactly. We know that story. Well, like you said, it's easier to get a license for an oil rig than it is for seaweed farming, unfortunately. Poor guy. Yep. Um, should we just kill him and eat, eat him? Yeah, let's just kill, well, let's fucking kill your working. dog right now. Honestly. Okay. Hey. Hey, tell us about some more food systems, Noah. All right. Just talked about seaweed farming. Yep. So in the, in the film, David shows the Netherland, the Netherland greenhouses. And it looks like basically, it looks like greenhouses from like 2050. Right? It's like space age greenhouses with shit, with shit all automated and I, th- I thought that was tight, so I wanted to look oh, the more vertical, in- the vertical greenhouses, the vertical greenhouses with like it's like oh, they're all automated, and then he shows these tomato plants that look like the most ripe, like sick ass tomato plants ever. Yeah, sick ass plants. Right, and just Dutch people walking around being Dutch, super Dutch people. So yeah, can handsome, I just say something? Handsome and tall. I just want to say something. I I visited the Netherlands recently. Healthy people, right? Okay, the way these the way the people are. Is damn it, Ollie, suck it. Get him in here. Get him in here. Ollie, come here. So the way the way the way these people are is that they are they're better looking than you. Right. They're a lot taller than you. They are are probably healthier than you. And they they lead they lead a better life than you. Okay. And they kind of know it. Right? So the Dutch the Dutch have kind of got it figured out. It's frustrating when you're there. They're not, I will say, they are not the friendliest people. Why? Because they figured it out. I just think they look at it, like, probably look at us like just savages. Oh, yeah. They're just like, you guys are idiots. Mm-hmm. Meat eating right? savages. Me, like, you guys, you guys are just savages. So, obviously, the Netherlands has an unbelievable food system. We're going to compare it to the U.S. food system. Okay. Out of the 100 most populous countries for population density, mm-hmm. the Netherlands is number four with, with 1,093 people per mile. It's very. It's dense. a tiny country. The Netherlands is tiny, but they're really good at soccer and farming. Okay, so they have a thousand ninety-three people per mile. Is that? Does that mean they're very dense, or non-dense? Extremely dense, Adam. If there was a thousand and ninety-three people per every mile, do you think that would be dense or not? It's very dense. You're. I tell you, who's dense? Yeah, it's right. you. They're very All dense. Right? The U.S. is on that same list. Okay, what do you? What number do you think they are? I mean, I don't know. We have so much farmland. Are we like five hundred? Okay, so we're we're 79th. Okay. And we have 87 people per mile. So they have 1093, we have 87. Damn. So they are much more dense country. Way more dense. That's right. Now you got it. Okay? Even though they're way more dense, they're the number 2 exporter of food right behind the US. Bless you. Number 2 exporter of food right behind the US. They're the number 1 global leader in tomato exportation, potatoes and onions and the second largest exporter of vegetables. So doing something right. Absolutely. The tomatoes they grow, those suckling-ass babies that you see, they're 20 times more efficient. Shout than, out to tomatoes right now. They're popping. 
Yeah. No, the twenty is more efficient than growing them outdoors. So they yield the Netherlands tomatoes yield twenty times more with four times less water. Oh my god. So How? They, they make our farming look like we're cavemen farming. Like we're just con- we're just bla- like we said in the media episode, it's a black hole of resources. Yeah. The USA the US has two hundred and seventy times the landmass of the Netherlands. But yeah. So their efficiency for the land that they have is off the charts. Yeah. So why is and, that? So not only is their yield huge, but their environmental impact is tiny. They have reduced, they've basically reduced water use for their crops by as much as 90%. So how they get so good at farming? Yeah. Why, why are they like the, they're, they're the farming all-stars. Yeah. Basically. Okay. So a lot of it is cultural. In 1944, the Dutch, during the war, the Dutch faced starvation. The whole country. So much so that the government told people that their best, like the best way for them to find food was to forage for acorns. Jesus, really? They were starving, the entire country, foraging for acorns to eat them. So they became squirrels and evolved as squirrels. So they basically became squirrels. Um, and that like kind of that fear, that farming fear has has never left them. Oh, wow. It like imprinted. It was so bad that it imprinted itself on the nation. Okay. Okay. The next prime minister after, after that, Seiko Mansell, he was a veteran from the war. And guess what? He was a former farmer. And he set about to revolutionize farming. Oh, man. Yep. He was a farmer first, president second. Farmer first, president second. So basically, because of that farming scare, they're unbelievable. Okay, so why? Oh my God, here it goes. Go, go. Wagon Ninja University and Research. Right, I'm sure it's called Wagon Ninja. I'm sure that's how you call it. Okay, Wagon Ninja. Basically, this university that they have. So what? What Stanford is? I've heard of it. I've heard of Stanford. Yeah. So what Stanford is for the tech industry of Palo Alto? Okay. So you have Stanford and then the, the feeder. The kids feeder. from Stanford go straight to working in like tech companies and there. They become blood boys. They the become CEOs. blood boys, but you know what I mean? Yep. But the the tech revolution, you know, a lot of it is from Stanford. Yep. Got it's it. from having that yeah. university there. I get your point. Now I'll finish the metaphor. Rush me Bron again. James. Rush me again. Bron James. Rush You've me literally again. Rush me one more time. Okay. You and I'll come over there. I'm sorry. Hey LeBron, tell him to stop. You threw the pass off the backboard and now don't LeBron. Get- LeBron, <laughs> yeah, he just told me. He hey, just Bron. told me for you to shut up. Bron, you can sit. The chairs are comfortable. Okay, take a seat, buddy. <laughs> yeah, you can sit, dude. All right. So, so um, this university is it's the Stanford. What Stanford is to tech, this is the University of Farming. It's fifty miles southeast of Amsterdam, and it's regarded as the Silicon Valley of agriculture. That's fucking awesome. Yeah. So it's basically just a cluster of agricultural technology startups and experimental farms. Now it makes sense why shout out to our, our absolute boy Michael Bradshaw. Shout out to our fucking. Now it makes sense why he worked on a, a farm, a Dutch farm. It's like why are you working in Holland? Yeah, it does. That's why yeah. he did because yeah. they're the they're the OGs at farming. That's really Ernst cool. Ernst Van Den and Adam, the managing director of W. Sorry, what was that? Or er, fucking Ernst Ernst Van, a Dutch dude, the managing director of WUR's plant sciences group said, "I'm not simply a college dean. Half of me runs plant sciences, but the other half oversees nine separate businesses involved in commercial contract research." Oh, very cool. So the the business and the academic is like together, completely mixed. Very cool. Yeah. Where are we? Are we're not like that? Well, from what, what he says is I've seen. what he says. Only that mix the science driven in tandem with market driven yep. yep. can meet yep. the challenges that lie. That's a fucking lootly. That's a fucking lootly. That's, that's what we're talking lootly. about. That's right. With the Ernst. problem with with the seaweed thing is that when scientists do research, as we were talking to One about his research in the Planarian episode, yeah, they just release the research out there. 
Yeah, there, there's no like they've no one to the pick research, it up. Right? You need someone to pick it up. They do this research, they prove something, and then there's like just release it. And they're like, get me pub. I need to get. Published. We, we almost like need, so we need some lubricant between the science community and the the practical engineering totally. side. Totally, and so that's why I bring up Stanford because Stanford has been able to do lubricant like that for tech. Okay. Okay, and so so in the Netherlands, they've been able to do this with the farming. Fuck yeah, that is cool. Yeah, so we need this. We need this really bad. Okay, I love the that. farm. The farms. Um, the the biggest challenge according to Ernst, the Dutch dude, he said that that the planet must produce more food in the next four decades than all farmers in history have harvested over eight thousand years. Oh boy. He's so his hope is that the Netherlands won't be the biggest exporter of food, but the biggest exporter of knowledge. Oh, cool. They will be the biggest exporter of far- farming knowledge and techniques in the world. Where do we sign up? Where do I sign up? Yeah, this dude fucking rock. How sick would it be to take a Dutch farming course in sick farming and then we grow wheat? We grow literally mountains of marijuana. Ugh. That's it. Yeah, we would be like getting all the great training. And We'd then be getting like, all okay. the great training and be like, hey, be okay, go great. change the world. I'll be like, great. And then they grew a shroom farm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> go go feed the world. And then we'd just be growing shroom. They come over, we grow shrooms, weed. But we decided to use your technology to grow shrooms. I know. Is that chill? Vertical shroom garden. I'm sure that they, I'm sure they use the tech yeah. to grow their shit. Uh-huh. The farmers are mostly owned by small family run businesses that need to innovate, change and compete to remain stable. This is a huge difference with the U.S., which yeah. is mainly run by mega, humongous, mega corpse. humongous farming companies like Monsanto's, okay, that occupy most of the market and they compete not by being the best, but by being the biggest. I don't believe there's an S in Monsanto's, but who's counting? You're right. Monsanto. Mm-hmm. Definitely right. The okay. podcast of pronunciation. This is a pronunciation podcast. Sometimes it's a digital podcast. Okay, how? How are they so good, Adam? How are they so good, Noah? They test everything. Ugh. An example study that... An example study, it's like... There's one study that they're testing. Do tomatoes grow best when bathed in LED light from above, behind, beside, or a combination? Oh, cool. So they'll do like, ask specific things of like where to put your LED light. Like you have an LED light out there for your carnivorous plants. I do. Yeah. What if you knew that the carnivorous plants would grow tw- like... 30% bigger if you put them on the sides. Yeah, that would be fucking awesome. Yeah, that's what this is the shit they do. Okay, they do what's called precision farming. Mm-hmm. It's knowing exactly what each plant needs and when. So they have drones that fly around, and they actually analyze each plant for its life stage. The, mm. so- the software is really cool on this, too. There's a lot of software I bet they're working on. So they have moth-killing drones cat- and caterpillar-killing drones that fly around and kill like pests. Instead of using pesticides, they just have the drones fly around and do it. Wow. Yeah, and the, how does the drone kill the pest? It literally just runs into it with its propeller. What? Yeah. Wait, there's... Oh, so they keep it... They're trying to keep it organic? Is that why? Yeah. It just clips it off. Okay, so they're, they're not trying to put pesticides on the crops, or are they? I guess not. They're droning. They, they drone how get rid of the How is that more efficient than dropping a bunch of pesticides on the crop? I think the results speak for themselves. Okay. Okay. Take your word for it. So drones read the plant and they control the climate for that specific plant, spraying or applying for fertilizer and water as needed. Um, some even measure soil chemistry, water count, content, nutrients, and growth. And they measure every single plant. Because of the controls in the greenhouse, they're able to mirror any climate for any particular plant all year round. A lot of them only use rainwater and recycled water. And a lot of them only use geothermal energy and excess heat from nearby refineries to heat their greenhouses. So I think that, that's important to note is that not only are they they better at farming, but they're also, they're not just like using more energy to farm. They, they use all renewable energy. So they're just, they're just fucking better. Um, so what are they working on, Adam? Yeah. That's the question I asked you. 
What are they fucking working on? Yeah. Like, what's the new thing? Yeah, what are they working on? Talk it's, to me. Okay, so instead of growing feed for livestock, one hectare of land yields a metric ton of soy, which is common common livestock feed. Adam. One fuck ton of soy. One fuck ton of soy. Yep. If you use that same land to grow grasshoppers, that same, that same hectare can produce 150 tons of insect protein, which is 150 times the food... 150 times the food that we use that same land to grow soy. I said that terribly. We're growing grasshoppers Let me just tell you, if we grew fucking grasshoppers, it would be 150 times more effective to feed livestock. Is that what's happening? That's what they're doing. Are they growing? They're growing grasshoppers? Yes. How? They're just like breeding them in giant vats? So instead of feeding livestock soy, they use... I know that. In that same land, Adam, they grow grasshoppers, which is more nutrient dense. How are they growing the grasshopper? What's the methodology to growing a grasshopper? Good question. Not sure. But they're growing fucking grasshoppers. But they're growing way more efficient. They're gonna feed feed, because way more efficient to feed the livestock. Okay. Yeah. Also, also vertical farms. They have a dream that they're gonna have vertical farms that are as tall as skyscrapers. See that? See that in the film? Oh, as tall as skyscrapers. Yeah. They want like literally a vertical farm the size the size of the Empire State Building. Yeah. Use the vertical. space. Why not? Just fucking go up. Vertical space. Go up. Go fucking straight up. Yeah. Be sick. That's so awesome. Another thing they're doing is extracting bacteria from crops that can survive in the desert, and oh. then they put like put it into tomatoes. Yeah. So that you can like in the middle of the desert, you can grow a tomato plant. Wow. They take like the resistant shit that a cactus has. Oh, and they and they, they graft, put it and they, they put it into a tomato a tomato plant. So and like they make super these tomato. super resilient tomato plants. Cool. So you can grow fresh fruit everywhere. Yeah. Okay. And that is Dutch farming. In the David, it pans over this area of the Sahara, and there's giant mirrors, and you see a really large tower, and he tells you that it's in Morocco. And Maybe we could burn the dude with the lawnmower on the kind of Oh, you could, you could definitely burn the dude in the lawnmower. It's pretty quick when he shows the farm, which is why I want to go into it a little bit further, because it's an amazing feat of engineering and globalization as well. The first thing you should know about the Moroccan solar farm is absolutely huge. It's roughly as big as Manhattan. And it generates enough power for a city like Paris to run every day. Really? Yeah. It's that big. So where is the farm? It's on the edge of the Saharan desert. On the edge. Not in it. Not in the sand dunes. But it's like right on the edge where it gets a ton of sun per day. Yeah. That makes sense. And it's pretty inhospitable anyway. Yeah. Very inhospitable. The key to the Moroccan solar farm is that it uses new solar technology. And that is the, be- the ability to be able to generate power and then store it. So typically solar, you can't store the power anywhere. So it only really affects um, during the day. But the newer technologies have been able to take the power and put it into a battery. So it stores it overnight. So you can still power cities overnight with this technology. Make sense? So they store it in a battery. Yes. And this comes in the form of molten salt. So it takes the heat reflected by the mirrors and heats up this molten salt. And okay. this stays at a very high temperature. So therefore, it contains lots of energy. The way that humans, in general, the way that we feel energy is through heat. Yes. Right? So when I say heat, I mean energy. So it heats up the salt. Therefore, it has way more energy to be used later on, like at night, so-and-so. But realistically, no. Yeah. Realistically. Okay. But aren't they exporting the, aren't they exporting the, the solar? Yes. Yes. That is a vision of the future, is to export solar energy. What do they use it now for? They use it now to power their cities. What, like all of the, how, how, what percent of Morocco is solar? It's, it powers one of their major cities. The one major of city, them. Which I forgot what it is. I forgot Marrakesh. It's Marrakesh, I believe. 
Marrakesh. I'm going to go with Marrakesh. Okay. That is definitely a restaurant in Portland. I'm pretty sure that that's why you're saying Marrakesh. I'm thinking that Marrakesh is the city in Morocco. Listener trivia question. Yeah. What is the capital of Morocco? Okay. Uh, realistically, though, the Moroccan solar farm, it's all for a profit. Okay. It's not just all like taking seaweed and fucking sinking in the bottom of the ocean. Like up green by, shit, yeah. you know? Because of the cuts in the oil industry that we are noticing, we are living in right now, many engineers from the oil industry have just jumped and switched over to do solar. Uh, even the chief of product at the Moroccan solar farm admitted that his incentives are strictly financial. The workers themselves, when interviewed, they don't really care about the plight of the planet, obviously. So to speak, there are currently 3,000 Chinese contractors that get bussed in from dormitories on the campus of the Moroccan solar farm to work on the site every day, getting paid basically a pittance. Okay. And they, so they, they're dark, not some bad parts about the Moroccan solar farm. Right. There you go. And they're not really, they're not into it for like, you know, Greenpeace and shit. So, like that. so that's actually how profitable it is though. Yeah. It's very profitable. Yeah. Why don't we just make huge solar farms? So inhospitable parts of the desert, like the middle of California, for instance, there's you mean large parts. You mean death Valley, death Valley. Why don't we just make a huge solar farm there? It's a national park. That's one. Okay, Adam. Yeah. But okay, but other parts that people can't live in that are inhospitable anyway, why don't we just put solar panels there? Like the Sahara? Absolutely. Yeah, just put fucking solar panels down. Yeah. I mean they're big. This is as big remember, this is as big as Manhattan. It's it's big. That's how big this is? Yeah, as big as Manhattan. That is fucking insane. Like literally it looks it looks the same too, like an it's like a long kind of boot. So if you were there, you would just look to the like look to the horizon, you would just see yeah. solar. And apparently these mirrors, like when you go actually stand next to them, they are absolutely intimidating. They're huge. Each of the mirrors. Can you even stand there or will they burn you? No, you can stand there. Okay. Okay. What so, a feat of engineering. Right. Exactly. A huge feat of engineering, um, which is crazy because the Moroccan government is a dictatorship. But once again, we've kind of seen through our research in another episode that a dictatorship, sometimes it's actually beneficial for getting things done. Unfortunately, now I'm not saying that we should have a dictatorship at all. I'm but just saying I that because you it just is say, to, I want this and it just happens. So in this case, faster. the Moroccan dictator is into um, alternative energy for some reason. Well, to sell it. Yes, to sell it and also to power his country. Okay, so what? So with the energy right now, they just use it internally. Um, yes, but it's supposed to be to sell in the future. When I think about this bad boy, I'd be like, all right, this thing works. Let's get 10 of them and let's fucking sell the energy. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so that's, that's the plan, right? So they're building more parts. They're making this farm even bigger and they want to make new farms as well. When are entrepreneurs going to, when are there going to be desert Entrepreneurs, yeah, right. that start buying places, Saharan, Saharan buying solar places in the Sahara to strictly put their solar their solar stuff to then sell the energy. Yeah, like uh, Bitcoin farming. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the, and you know the area that they're in is such a crazy historical area. Like when you go to that part of the world, there's like ancient ruins right next to the solar farm. It's pretty cool. Yeah, like the new in and the Africa, old. Like it's the it's almost the birthplace of humanity right there. The new and the so old. So you can see the new, yeah, and the old. Um, mentioning the new and the old, this enterprise as an enterprise is pretty amazing. It's very globalized. So the company's spokesperson, he's South African. The workers, as I was saying, were Chinese. Are Chinese. The country is an Arab dictatorship, and the financiers for the project are Saudi Arabian. So it's kind of strange, but also kind of cool at the same time that maybe this will be the world in the future. You know, maybe we will all work together to make something as brilliant as this. I actually think it's cool that um, 
there are no real environmental like they don't they it just is not care a, about the, they yes. just care about the profit. I it think it's not pro- an environmental project. Well, I just think it proves that you can just do this shit for a profit. Absolutely. If you need to. That's what they're saying, the CEOs of of the uh of the thing. I'm cool. just thinking about like going to the plant and like there's like a really nice office. They go to the top of the office and it's like the CEOs. He's looking out over the over, over the mirrors. Sick, he's like, like it's like a tower like, looking at all the solar profit. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like looking out. It's like dark music playing. He's looking out at a solar farm. If you notice in the video, they show the big tower at the top. You know, there's all these solar farms, and then basically where you'd have um, if this was New York, like where, an air traffic where like tower. Harlem would be. Okay, there is a tower. Okay, and that is the molten salt tower. Where the energy is stored. It's all stored in that one tower. In that one tower, yeah. Huh, interesting thing. Okay, so that's the new technology they're using. Does the U.S. have any plans to build some of this shit in our desert? I'm so glad you asked. So in the future, right, solar is predicted to grow in Texas and California especially. Yeah. Unfortunately, with the Trump uh, Chinese tariffs, the uh, solar industry has been hit the hardest of any industry. Really? Yeah. Why? So job growth has, if you look at the job growth, it's taking off until like 2017 when the tariffs happened and it has just completely stagnated. Is that because a lot of the parts that we need come from? You are fucking amazing. Come you from Chai Chai? You're fucking amazing. Thank you. 80% of solar panels are built in Chinese factories. Mm. So the tariffs, while not specifically designed to cripple solar, have resulted in 62 million jobs lost and over $19 billion in private investment lost. Because it just costs too much right now to make solar panels. Damn. Yeah. Even though the industry is growing, it is absolutely any kind of chart that you look up, the job growth, you know, with GDP per capita of solar, it is just leveled off last four years for us, at least. Yeah. In West Texas, mm-hmm. as I've, as you know, I've spent a lot of time driving around West Texas. Indeed. Tell us about it. You could put... Acre, uh, you could put endless amounts of solar farms there. What if no one's living there? What if it incentivized these ranches out there? Because it's private land, right? M- maybe? Mostly? But, yes. Actually, that's very good. So yep. so I think what people don't... Yeah. In West Texas, where they drill for a lot of oil, right, there right. are private ranches yep. that they have to get a lease from to drill, drill oil. The thing is that I feel like with these ranches, they don't need to take away the... You can just put the solar farms there and drill. So it's easier. it's easy for them to do too. Yeah, it would be and great. if it's profitable for for these companies, they'll do it. So I think that yeah, that's the best part about this Moroccan solar farm is it shows that it, that something environmental can also be used to make great profit as well. Okay, cool shit. So how do we make it so that people that are just interested in the profit, like ho home businessman, top of his tower in the Moroccan solar farm, like you nothing know, wrong with dominating. That. I just, just want to say there's the nothing, Chinese workers. Nothing wrong with that. Everyone's how can make we make it so these people are incentivized to do environmental things? That's how. That, I think that's that what's is, cool. That is this. how. Okay. That's what I have for Moroccan solar farms. Noah. Yeah. There's a large disaster. I don't know if you know this. We have a nuclear episode. You should go check it out. Yeah. We talk about Chernobyl. Tell us about the Chernobyl wilderness zone, how that area has recovered. Okay. So in the movie, you guys probably remember scenes of seeing, there's just da- there's scenes of just David walking around. 93-year-old David. 93-year-old David. No one to help just him. Just honestly walking in his own locomotion is amazing. Yeah. He's just walking around and it's like, <laughs> it's like David is the ghost of Chernobyl. That's what it looks like, honestly. Does he light, does he light up the herb? You think? Does David light up the herb? What does he feel about herb? Damn, that's a really good question. He's like the prophet. Be like, David. David, tell us about herb. There just needs to be a book where you can ask him any question you want. Be like, David, tell us about tell us about when you've lit tell us up. about sex. Tell us about dating. He has a really funny. Oh, yeah, I will put this on the Facebook page. He is he has basically like dudes hitting on a girl 
at a bar, but like him, he narrates it did as like a nature do, documentary. Did he actually yes, do it? Yes, he actually video? does it. It's a he great actually, video. Yeah, I will, I will put the video. It's really funny. It is funny. All right, anyway, the Chernobyl Wilderness Zone. It's the largest abandoned area in Europe. It covers 2,800 square kilometers of northern Ukraine. It's the third largest nature reserve in mainland Europe. So basically, of this huge disaster area, okay, yeah. it's now become this unbelievable like nature preserve. It's the, it's the bookends of the documentary. It's the opening and the closing of the movie. Yeah. Okay. We have there's creatures like brown bears, moose, lynx, bison, deer, elk, wolves that live there. Um, wolves in the Chernobyl exclusion zone have grown to seven times what they are in other reserves in the Ukraine. Holy shit! So we have there's creatures doing real, really, really well so there. It's basically like a uh, it's a fucking Russian just wilderness. It bears looks, and shit. It looks okay. So it pretty much looks like the forest from Dark, honestly. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, right? yeah. It's a it looks forest. just like the forest from Dark. It, it's dark, dank, just kind of kind of depressing. Ukrainians Honestly, kind of a depressing forest. Yeah. The forest in Portland is pretty happy. It's green and happy. Oh. You know, I think the forest in Ukraine is a depressing forest. But why, the animals is, like why it. Why do you think it's a depressing forest? It's just dark and like, the, the animals like it. There's a lot of life there. Why is the forest here a happy forest? Uh, it's green and bright. You need sunlight. I need sunlight in my but forest. It's, I've also never been to Ukraine. Here's forest, a rain, it's a rainforest here. Yeah, but for I don't know. For some reason, it just seems so. The it's like it seems happier. It seems like a happy forest. It's emotional. I'm just fucking. I'm just fucking ten. Let's move on. Yeah. Okay. There's a hundred rare species that live in in this exclusion zone. Oh wow. The other thing that's little talked about, which drives me crazy, is that the Chernobyl exclusion zone. It actually lies right adjacent to the Belarus exclusion zone, which is the same size. Okay, so if you imagine a yin and a yang, okay, the white and the dark, one mm. is the Chernobyl and one is the Belarus exclusion zone. Yeah. For some reason, the Belarus exclusion zone is never talked about. When the when the power plant blew up, okay, a lot of the decay also blew into Belarus. You've always been saying this that people don't talk enough about Belarusia. I've always said that Belarus never gets its light in the sun. Yeah, that's okay. why you subscribe to Belarus Belarus Daily. Yeah, and that's why I'm on Belarus dating sites. So okay. basically. It's a sh- it, there's a, there's approximately one fuck ton of nature reserve there now. Huge. Okay. Since it's so Chernobyl, Huge. obviously there's a renewed interest to view the site. How you just picked your nose? How was that? It, it was fine. In, I liked it. I didn't eat it. In April, unfortunately, there was a large wildfire covering 200 kilometers in the middle. Okay. What's interesting about this wildfire is what does the wildfire do to the radiation that's buried there? Okay. Okay. So scientists didn't know this. In the middle of the fire, the radiation levels actually rose 17 times. Although no radiation was picked up in the nearby city of Kiev, it is alarming that the radiation is still there waiting to be released. So the radiation, is, is it stored in the trees? I guess it's stored in the ground in the trees. And when there was a fire there recently in April, it re- it like released it. Oh, man. Not to like terrible levels, but it is it like the radiation is holed up there. So that makes me think that like, is it, it has nature basically made the radiation levels go down? So... Ooh, in general, ooh, interesting. Like the growth of all the nature there has I mean, like yeah, sucked up the radiation. Ha- yeah, if it's if it's habitable organically, right? It has. Yes, if it if if the fire comes and it burns like some trees have grown there and it's releasing seventy times the radiation, then yeah, it's sucked up the radiation basically. Oh wow, it's like fern gully basically. It's sucked up the evil. It's exactly like fern gully actually. Yeah. Um. In twenty in twenty nineteen, the main research groups that like conduct wildlife research there, they met in England. And presented their findings on if the radiation has negative side effects on the on the wildlife there, mm-hmm. um, and they they came to the conclusion that no, basically the radiation doesn't seem to be having negative effects there, 
Although some of the wildlife there, it is diff It is like so, like the frog that a frog that's found in the Ukraine wilderness zone. It is darker. Really? The same species of frog is darker than what is what occurs elsewhere. Okay. So it's a really interesting study in how radiation affects things. It's just a little bit darker. Yeah, it's a little bit darker. Okay. Anyway, like, and also like the lynx is it? It's like oh, basically almost extinct. Except that they found it here in the in the wilderness zone on wilderness cameras. It's like critically endangered. Critically endangered. How many are left in the wild? Not a fucking lot. Okay. Well, yeah. So this place rocks basically, but this brought me to something really interesting, which is other like basically forced forced wilderness reservations. So like Chernobyl was a forced wilderness reservation. No one wanted it to be there, but now that humans can't inhabit it, it mm. is there. Yeah. Right. So. There's two other there's two other zones. One big one is the demilitarized zone between North and South oh Korea. Oh my god. Okay. Right? So between North and South Korea, there's a two and a half mile strip of land. So there's like it's a very long, narrow strip. It's two and a half miles wide. It's dotted like each side is dotted by landmines and it's hemmed hemmed in by bunkers, trenches, you know, walls, gates, and of course, hundreds of thousands of soldiers. Oh god. Okay. Okay. So in the middle in this two and a half mile stretch. There's a ton of endangered species, basically, because it's become this forest wilderness reserve. Are they just stepping on landmines and stuff? Um, no, I guess landmines. The landmines are like past the wall on the other side. Okay. Okay. So, species such as the Asiatic black bear, the red crown crane, the white naped crane, and the extremely rare and critically endangered. But when we say critically endangered, that means like under a hundred. Okay. That means like this shit's about to go. Mm. It is the Amur leopard and the Siberian tiger. Oh shit! So there's so there's tons of shit there. There's yeah. like very cool Asian kind of mountainous, very creatures. cool Asian mountainous creatures. So like at this point, you really can't take that thing away. I love a crane. Cranes are so sick. Yeah, I think this for some reason I'm fucking into this little niche of the internet. Yeah, which is like forest nature reserves. Very cool. Thought that was really interesting. I'd love to see pictures from this. Yeah, the. Yep. <laughs> Okay, so the other one is the Darien Gap. It's between Panama and Colombia, um, and it's it's in. There's a huge rainforest between in between Panama and Colombia. Right. That's why you can't drive all the way down to South America. Exactly. There's actually not a road that like goes through it because it's so thick of jungle. It, it's so thick. There's also not a road because of all the guerrilla fighting. So basically, there's a ton of gorilla the gorillas that are fighting the Colombian government. G U E or gorilla. Gorillas, yeah. like I'm a gorilla. <laughs> yeah, that's or a really I'm a good gorilla point. With a gun, there's just gorillas. It's Planet of the Apes down there, and it's funny. he's running around. No, it's it's gorilla fighters, right? Gorilla fighters are fighting the Colombian government okay. in this in the in this rainforest. Why? Why? Exactly? Not sure, but because of that, it's unable to be right to be developed. Okay. Okay. So it's a forest nature reserve, and there's actually there's actually Adam there's one in the United States. Very cool. Oh shit. So wait, you, you touched on the one in Panama. Yep. The DMZ, Chernobyl, and what's this next one? Yep. So this next one is in the USA. Do you have any guess? You probably don't. I would love to guess. Wait, I'd love to guess. Okay, I'm going to give you like two guesses. Okay, where is the Forest Nature Reserve in the USA? Is it like Three Mile Island or something? That's a, am I close? That, that is a really interesting. Wait. And I bet that is a nature reserve now at this point. But if you don't know, Three Mile Island was a nuclear disaster site. Listen to the nuclear episode. Yeah. Wait, let me, let me, let me take another guess. Forced nature reserve. Mm-hmm. I'm into this. I'm into, for, I'm into animal sex and forced nature reserves. Is it like civil war battlefields? Okay. So 
The, it's the Rocky Mountain Arsenal National Wildlife Refuge in Colorado. Whoa. Rocky okay. Mountain Arsenal. Yep. So in World War II, this was a chemical weapons production facility. Okay. Okay. It used to be a chemical weapons production facility. And the area was left after World War II because of all the toxins and the chemical weapons waste and all the bad shit. Okay. So they had to fence off this whole area. And it's basically, and it's become this like crazy flourishing ha- habitat that's like right next to Denver. I think it might be in Denver, actually. That's fucking awesome. Yeah, it's really awesome. What do you find in there? Um, moose. Bears? Are they bears? So, black-footed ferrets. Oh. American bison, baby. Yeah. Killing and saving of the American American buffalo. Best episode ever. Yeah. Don't care what everyone says. Yeah, don't care what everyone says. We I like the episode. Okay, American bison, prairie dogs, bald eagles, coyotes, and 330 other species wander around the 25 square miles in this in this area. Okay. Okay. They've and so like the American bison, it's like now that it's a nature reserve, they reintroduce endangered species to it. Oh shit. Yeah. So so now it's like this twenty five square miles of wilderness. They're like, yeah, this is great. That's fucking amazing. Yeah, and it's an it's an old chemical weapons facility. I think it just shows that, you know, if we give nature a chance, it will it naturally takes yeah. things back. It'll naturally just go back. That's amazing. Isn't that sick? I, I didn't know there was one in the US, but that's a really cool I one. I hope we never get to the point where it can't do that. You know, that's the problem, right? I know. I know, it's sad. Um but that's really fucking cool. Hey, Adam, it's time for something. Give it to me. Give me a daddy. Okay. Um. So we so here's what here's what we here's what we talked about. Moroccan solar farming. Yep. Chernobyl wilderness zone. That's a fucking. And movie. then we t- Chris talking about coral bleaching. Yeah. Okay. You want to go? I'll go first. Yeah. Um. I was just saying it. I, I hope that we, if we give nature a chance, it seems like it organically, naturally will go back, which is incredible. It has this ability to restructure and, and balance itself out. And hopefully we don't get to the point where we can't do that. So we just need to limit our impact. And there's so many cool ways that we can do that. Um, and, you know, it's fucking, fucking, let's just fucking do it. I don't know. Let's fucking do it. Let's fucking do hey, it. Hey, David, David's, David's awesome. We're going to lose a great one pretty soon. We're so. going to lose a great one. And like I said, maybe the most important might be the most important person to ever be born. We'll see. Hey, I, a big thing. I think it's really cool with the Moroccan solar farms that you can make a very, very, very for-profit business that mm-hmm. is sustainable energy. I think that's, 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 that's a very good use case for we that. Need, we need government subsidies well, for this. I think stuff. that's the best use case for that is right there. Not sure why we don't have all solar farms in yeah, all of our I shitty just, deserts that nothing's in. just told you. Because of the tariffs, the Chinese tariffs. Okay. Well, yeah. I'm just saying. So, um, not the, a good the, idea. The other thing, okay. And again, like my another fetish I have besides animal sex. Yep. Is insect sex. Is, is insect sex, but also forced wildlife refuge. Yeah. It is amazing. Chernobyl, you know, we've barely been out of there. And it's just crazy. It has lynx that are like not seen anywhere. It has moose. Yeah. The wolves have made a huge comeback there. It's crazy. Meese. Yeah. The the, uh, the meese. A group and of moose. And then the demilitarized zone was in North and South Korea. Was like a war zone battle. It was like a just a shit, absolute battlefield. Yeah. And now it is like home to like species that we have like a hundred left of. Hmm. Um. So very very cool that nature can just grow back. It's wild. Shout out to. Sarah's boyfriends, number one, two, three. Hundred percent. Sarah's them. boyfriends. Shout out to all of them for being there. Um, shout out to Meese in general. You're you're so big. A moose is big. Are you talking about moose when you say meese? Um, a meese is a group of moose. Yeah, I have. I've seen a moose once. In, in, have you in really real seen life? a moose? Actually, in Colorado, where, in Colorado, we where were, did you see a moose? In Colorado, shout out Rocco. 
What's up, dog? I love you. Okay, we, we were going on a hike, and on the way back, we saw we saw uh, a moose. It's incredible. What was it like? It's huge. That's such a cool wildlife thing. It was so big. It was insanely big. It must be huge. Huge, huge, huge. They're, like shocking, the they're shockingly big. Oh, my God. Like, like shockingly you big. You wouldn't want to fuck with a moose. No. A moose a meese would take you. Shout out to moose. And shout, honestly, out to big, another, shout out to megafauna. And, and shout out to megafauna, big fauna. Shout out to the megafauna in the deep ocean. Okay? Oh, Jesus. Since you're listening to this podcast, we know you're down there. And one day, a sub is going to go down there and just get wrapped in a tentacle. And slurped up. Guys, if you love the podcast, we would love a review. It really helps. Thank you so much. We love you guys. Love you. Bye.